Yeah, I believe there's a blessing for those of us who are on church, in church on uh, New Year's Eve. <laughs> uh, thanks, team, so much for, for leading us. Cherie, Mother, Laura, that was um, a beautifully sort of contemplative uh, way to do worship this morning. And I, I, I do, I think there's a, there's a theme that, that comes through for us this morning, comes through from the passage that we're about to engage with, uh, but through what God's been saying through Jake and, and Pete and um, Cherie as well. So the passage uh, for this morning um, comes from Isaiah 61, verses 10 to 62, verses 3, and um, Aurora Tyson's going to come and read it for us. Thank you, Aurora. (laughs) I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, for Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet, till her vindication shines out like the dawn. Her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your Lord. The word of God. Thanks, Aurora. Yep, you can clap, Aurora. Yeah. Especially because, truth be told, I just sprung that on her uh, this morning. So thanks for being a good sport, Aurora, and and blessing us with that. So um, Isaiah 61 um, is a passage that's come up a few times in the last uh, few weeks in the lectionary. Uh, Not necessarily these verses, but some perhaps more famous verses. Uh, What do we find in Isaiah 61? What comes to mind? Are there any... Uh, Sunday school champions in the room. I say Isaiah 61. You might not think of these verses. Can you think of some other verses that spring to mind? I'm taking a risk here. All right, Shine. Yeah. Uh, The beginning of this chapter actually serves as something of a manifesto for Jesus' ministry. So you might remember when he, for the first time, stands up to kind of uh, take a position of teaching authority in the synagogue, he quotes Isaiah, and he quotes Isaiah in a way that says something about his mission in the world. And I don't want to dwell uh, too long on uh, this, because this isn't the passage that I'm preaching, but it gives some context, and we've got a little bit of time. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. 
when we talk about the good news, that's a significant part of it. It's significant enough that Jesus begins there. He's talking about the nature of the kingdom that he is bringing in. He's talking about, in fact, and this might get a bit complex for us, uh, maybe beyond the time that we have to put into it, but to an extent he's talking about salvation. This is a salvific passage, and so is this passage that Aurora has read for us. Uh, Isaiah is talking about salvation. Um, So I am going to take us through this passage that is concerned with salvation, is concerned with our great hope as Christians. And I'm going to use three uh, deep touch points. I've had uh, a, a lot of time to meditate on the appropriateness of these as kind of cultural touch points for this passage. The first is um, hummus. I want to talk to us about hummus a little bit. Makes sense, right? Um, The second is uh, marriage. Uh, There's imagery in this passage uh, concerned with marriage. And then thirdly, another image that comes from Isaiah here, and it's the language of sprouting, sowing, new shoots, and so forth. So, the holy uh, or unholy, tri- <laughs> I'm not even going to say that. Three things to think about. Uh, hummus is pretty great. Uh, hummus, or hummus, how do you pronounce it, Dwayne? You're hummus, there you go. Uh, marriage and new shoots. When uh, we think about this passage from Isaiah 61 and 62, as I mentioned, Isaiah is talking about salvation. In fact, he uses the term. He talks about here, as you can see, uh, the salvation of Zion being like a blazing torch. And to give us a little bit of context about how he understands this, what this might have meant for his original audience, uh, we are back uh, 700 years uh, before Jesus And we are at a time when the nations of Israel and the nations of Judah are quite vulnerable, actually. As is often the way throughout the history of these quite small nations, empires rage around them. And there's a story that plays out throughout the Old Testament. It's a story that the prophets often come into. And it involves Israel, these small vulnerable nations often um, sort of jostling, uh, vying for their own security in the face of raging empires, great shifts uh, that are happening uh, politically and and, uh, geographically, uh, finding ways to kind of um, maintain some security. And what often happens is they end up making partnerships with other nations around them. Often they do things which are set to appease the kind of power uh, brokers of the day, in this case uh, the presenting empire is the Assyrian Empire, or they make alliances with other smaller empires to sort of try and jostle for a level of security. And inevitably, when they do this, they are drawn into a kind of compromise which changes who they are. God has called them to be his people, to be a light to the nations, to be a kingdom that exhibits 
the characteristics of him as a God, a kingdom of, as we'll see in, in, in a moment, righteousness, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom that worships God alone. And when they begin to make alliances and deals, inevitably, this is corrupted somehow. And so Isaiah is uh, mostly dealing with the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom at the time. Israel and Judah had, for a whole heap of reasons we won't have time to go into, but they had their own reasons to sort of split up. And Isaiah is saying, watch out, people of God. We're at risk here of giving away our birthright. We're at risk here of no longer being the people that God has called us to be. And when that happens... It's like the favour of God is removed. God elects Israel. He adopts, uh, the scripture talks about Israel being like a son or daughter. He adopts them to be a part of his family and to operate according to the ethic of his family. When they choose not to live up to that, the covering of God as father is often removed. And the prophets often talk about the judgment of God coming against them through other nations. And um, Isaiah, to an extent that has, you know, the more kind of sceptical biblical scholars almost wonder if it could have been Isaiah because of his insight. He sees past the challenge that is presented, the threat that is presented by the Assyrian Empire, and he sees actually a future in which the people of Judah are going to be carried off to captivity in Babylon. So he is giving the people a warning. He's saying, maintain faithfulness to God. Maintain faithfulness to the ethics of his family. Trust in him alone, despite the precarity of your situation. And he will vindicate you. He will uphold your security. If we don't do this, judgment will come. There will be a long period of exile in a foreign land. And the words that we pick up here are words of grace and of hope because the prophet Isaiah is seeing even beyond the exile and seeing after this period of exile and judgment, the Lord will be faithful. He will bring the exiles back. He will restore his glory to Zion. Salvation will be for uh, the people of Judah God's people like a blazing torch. That's a message of hope, return from exile. And I love uh, the language that uh, the prophet Isaiah uses here to talk about this restoration, to talk about this salvation. He picks up on imagery that's associated with kind of the decadence and specialness of a wedding. And he talks about God clothing the returned exiles with garments of salvation, putting on salvation, as it were. That's probably familiar language for some of us as Christians. Um, arraying his people in a robe of his righteousness um, and then making righteousness and praise spring up from all the nations as they behold the goodness of God to his people. So I've set myself up with a perfect segue uh, to talk about hummus, right? You all knew it was coming on the next slide, didn't you? 
It was predictable. Was it too predictable? Um, I was remembering this week, uh, before I was married, uh, I was living in a share sort of house environment um, with, a, with a bunch of people as those uh, houses tend to work out. Jen's right in the, in the middle of the joy of um, whose dirty dishes are in the kitchen. We were chatting to her, uh, someone who's living in a... Anyone else living in a share house environment at the moment? Yeah, Chris and Carla. They're definitely your dirty dishes then, aren't they, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> we pray for you, Dot. Um, Chris just sort of pushes all the dirty dishes to one side of the table so Carla has a clean side. I know how things roll in your house, Magnuson. Um, praying for you as well, Carla. But um, uh, in uh, this particular share house environment, there were two Canadian guys from not uh, the jewel of the West Vancouver, uh, but the jewel of the prairies, Saskatchewan. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Saskatchewan. As I got to know these two Canadians, I said, what's in Saskatchewan to see? And they said, well, most of the year it's covered in snow and ice. It's really flat. In the summertime, there's some really high moss that we sometimes go and lie in. So um, needless to say, when we lived in Canada, I didn't bother going to uh, uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, because if I was going to drive 15 hours just to lie in moss... Um, I would have been questioning my life choices. Anyway, I'm sure there's lots that's lovely about Saskatoon in Saskatchewan, but these guys couldn't uh, really name what that was for me. But anyway, one day, uh, you know, we'd, we'd sit around at the end of the day when we came home from work and chat about what was going on. And I had a tub of hummus, Dwayne, and I can't even remember what I was dipping in my hummus, uh, but one of these Canadians... Uh, I don't know if people in Vancouver had heard of hummus by the early 2000s, but apparently these guys from Saskatoon hadn't. And he said, what are you eating? And I said, well, it's, it's hummus. And he said, what's hummus? And I realised when I went to describe what hummus is, it really undersells how great hummus is. And it's like uh, crushed up chickpeas with a bit of garlic, maybe a bit of tahini if you're lucky, a little bit of lemon juice, olive oil. And I could tell he was thinking like, you know, he, he was watching me dig into it like maybe someone from Saskatoon digs into, uh, you know, cheese dip or something like that. And not sure how uh, it could be something that, you know, I'd want to eat that much of. I said, try some hummus. And uh, maybe just to kind of humour me, to be polite, he dipped something in the hummus and he ate it. And actually, I don't know if people agree with me, I don't care on this point because it's my it's it's I've got the mic but hummus is kind of one of those things it's a bit of a growing thing isn't it it's like it's not it doesn't knock you out with its flavor initially I think that's actually part of what makes it so wonderful is it kind of you can eat a lot of it because it's not like it's not too much it's just subtle and it's healthy and I'm going to spend a bit more time on hummus so uh don't uh don't freak out here uh pastor Dwayne it's great. Hummus is great. You could, I'm a huge fan. I could eat hummus every day. I probably nearly do. Um, but anyway, this Canadian guy, uh, his name was Ian. Um, Ian maybe wasn't so sure after his first dalliance with hummus. Anyway, I can't remember how many days went by. But uh, sure enough, he comes home from the shops one day with his own tub of hummus. And uh, he probably just... Uh, mimicked me, bought the same brand of crackers or whatever, and he was eating that. He's like, I'm really getting into this hummus stuff. I'm like, 
uh, Mazel Tov, or what, uh, L'chaim, what would you say? Um, blessings to you. Uh, enjoy hummus forever. Uh, and he did. So uh, he's like, this hummus is great. The next day, he's like, have you tried hummus with celery? Uh, I'm like, absolutely. Hummus with celery is a winner. He's like, I can't believe how good hummus is with celery. And then the next day, it was like, have you tried hummus with carrot sticks? I'm like, buddy, <laughs> I'm way ahead of you. Everyone's tried hummus with carrot sticks. And over the course of a month or so, I got to enjoy watching Ian discover the kind of uh, the, the possibilities of hummus. And um, it made me realize that hummus kind of defies expectations. You might not think from the sound of it, <laughs> I'm going too deep here, aren't I? You might not think that it sounds that great when you read the recipe. And maybe even uh, on your first taste of it, you're like, oh, yeah, it's kind of neutral. I can take or leave it. Um, but it grows on you uh, because there's just, I don't know what there is about it. It is healthy. It's tasty. You can have it, as Ian discovered, with so many different things. It's better as you get to know it than it seems to be at first. I thought about using my marriage for this analogy, but... The <laughs> From Sharon's perspective, of course. Um, and she couldn't say that. But hummus is, is, a, is an expectation defier. And um, I, the reason why I was thinking about that is because, actually, it's tricky to kind of read uh, these promises that are made to God's people in the Old Testament and think, well, what do they mean to us as a New Testament people. Sometimes we might be tempted to kind of skate right past the Old Testament interpretation. Assyria, I don't care about them. Uh, you know, obviously everything in Isaiah is pointing to Jesus. He's the suffering servant. When we read Isaiah talk about salvation, he's talking about the salvation that we understand as Christians. Of course, um, I mean, that's probably pretty insulting to Jewish people, but it's also kind of ignoring what the Scripture is about. It's ignoring significant layers to the Scripture. I would contend, and I, I sort of do this as a way that I preach here, that we can't understand what it might mean for us as Christians if we don't first grapple with what it meant for Jewish people uh, through the centuries and then particularly the original audience. And Isaiah here is talking about a very kind of material restoration taking a people who have gone back into a situation so much like their slavery in Egypt, coming under the judgment of God for not living up to their calling, and then, by God's grace, being restored to their homeland, the place they dreamed about for so many years as they were exiled in Babylon. That offers a, a richness to our interpretation of the passage as Christians. And it made me think, actually, maybe marriage is a better metaphor than hummus. Hummus is better than we might expect it to be. It's, a, it's an expectation defier in some ways. But actually, uh, a good marriage, and the reason why the prophet uses this language of marriage, so... Uh, a bridegroom adorning his head like a priest, a bride adorning herself with jewels. 
is because a good marriage can not just defy expectations, but exceed expectations. Of course, um, not all the time. Uh, marriage, marriage doesn't always work out. But a good marriage can. And what I've noticed about marriages over the years is they don't end up having value necessarily in the place where you expect them to. Um, it's just one of those quirks of what it means to be human that so many of the things that you might anticipate about marriage, so many of the things that, uh, say, I was looking forward to when I was engaged to Sharilyn, I mean, they were great, like a good wedding, um, like um, romance, like, uh, you know, going on a great holiday after the ceremony and so forth. But as you get into the years of marriage, that stuff somehow becomes less important in the face of the true value that emerges. Does anyone know what I'm talking about here? Any people who years into their marriage actually realise, oh, there's so much we could have done different about our wedding. Um, I wish I'd spent less on my dress. I wish I'd spent more on my dress. I wish I hadn't invited Uncle Roger. I wish I had invited Uncle Roger. I wish we hadn't chosen the beef. Um, it kind of fades. I mean, it's not insignificant, but what really produces value out of a marriage is what you build together, right? It's, it's, it's companionship. <laughs> it's the task, actually, of doing life together. If you're blessed to have children, it's the dirty, tireless work of raising children. Um, if you've got a business, <laughs> it's the dirty, tireless work of making a business run. So much of it is mundane. So much of it actually is about sacrifice. And as I reflected on this, I realised, you know, for better or worse, and this is why we say it in the vows, and maybe uh, we could spend more time thinking about the traditional vows than uh, what colour our tuxedo should be. I really shouldn't have gone with the orange. Um, but is spoken to in the vows, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, <laughs> in sickness and in health, for better or worse, the power of marriage is in surrender. Isn't it? Because ultimately, that's what you do. And, and when it's good, <laughs> you surrender mutually to, to each other, to people you know, who you can trust. When it doesn't go so well, and, you know, we... We know this story with bitter tears. Um, someone's not to be trusted, <laughs> oftentimes. Um, the vulnerability that comes with surrender is, is abused. The power of it, though, for better or worse, is in surrender. I, I don't know if you can know that actually going in, to the degree that you learn it <laughs> over time. If you could, maybe some heartbreak would be avoided. But also, you would have this experience of coming into the richness, the depth, the joy of a life together that actually exceeds 
your expectations. And I love the language that Isaiah uses, where he transitions from this language about actually a wedding day. It's not just the marriage. It's, it's, it is the glitz and the glam. It's the, it's the Instagram reels. It's, uh, what does he say? The garments of salvation, the headdresses, the fancy jewels. And he connects that with grace. <laughs> An experience of God's grace is like the wonder of a wedding. But when that goes right, another process kicks in and he uses this more agricultural language. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before the nations. Two things, and I spent too long on hummus, so I'm going to have to wrap this up. I'm getting there. Two things I just want to mention about this. One is, and we can relate to this as Christians, it's God's work, right? Righteousness, which has always been a part of the deal for God's people, whether it was Jews or Christians, it's about righteousness, doesn't come from our own capacity as human beings. Even for the Jews, as I was saying, if you're to be righteous and vindicated for being God's people amongst the nations, it's a gift. <laughs> it's a grace. You can live the way that God calls you to live, but it is about surrender to him and allowing him to do the work. He will make you righteous. Praise God. And once we are ready to surrender, to lay our lives down like seed into the soil, it's a natural process. Seeds sprout up. I might get the, the team up on the stage as we come to a, to a close. It put me in mind of, of two passages as I was thinking about this section from Isaiah this week. Made me think of another prophet's words, Ezekiel, famous passage, 36, 26, where God speaks to the people through Ezekiel in similar circumstances and says, I'll give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. The second passage from the psalmist talks about taking delight in the Lord. And when we do, he will give us the desires of our heart. Maybe you've heard this explained before, maybe by a preacher in a sermon, and the point's been made. I think it's a great one. It's not so much about your desires it's about his heart. <laughs> it's about surrendering our desires, to use Ezekiel's words. Our heart that tends to stone, our heart that, that's nervous about security like the people of Judah were, compromised so often. 
acting out of fear, acting out of self-preservation, sometimes worse, acting out of greed or lust, being prepared to surrender that to God. And his promise is that he replaces it with his heart. That is the seed of the righteousness that might come from each of our lives. You know, I, I think it's a hard, <laughs> particularly hard time uh, to be a Christian in so many ways because we are so empowered, particularly here in the West with all the resource that we have. We're so empowered <laughs> to hold on to our hearts, to be the captains of our own ship. There's so much about life that we can navigate in our own capacity if circumstances go the right way for us. Some of us have had shattering experiences of that control being wrested away, right, by tragedy, circumstance, and we realise <laughs> we don't have it in control. But for so many of us, we seem to a lot of the time. And I feel like culture is, is kind of shaping us to hold on to that. But the challenge that comes to us from the scripture in Isaiah this morning, but time and time again, is a call to surrender. Is a call to surrender. So I want to challenge us as we think about the year ahead in 2024. Have we grappled with who can actually save us? <laughs> I don't know what your year's been like. Maybe it hasn't, you know, been what you'd hoped it would be. Maybe you feel like you kicked some goals. regardless of whether you go one way or the other on that. Can you save yourself? <laughs> Your plans for next year, are they going to save you? What are you investing in for the year ahead? Secondly, are our hearts aligned with God? For the year ahead, are we going to pursue the desires of our hearts, <laughs> regardless of what God's heart might be for our life? And then, related to that, you know, depending on how we would answer that question, is there something that we might need to surrender to God in order to? receive his heart in order to live according to his plan for our life in 2024.